0: Welcome to the Lex City Church podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Fool me twice, strike three. I think that's my favorite one out of those. But good morning, church family. I get the privilege of starting this fun kind of little mini-series we're doing over the couple weeks called Misquoted. And I don't know about you, but honestly, I feel like quotes are just a really American thing. We just love the idea of quotes. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because we just think they get to make us sound smarter when we recite something deep that we read or that we heard. Uh, Maybe it's just because they're inspirational and we love to be inspired. Maybe it's just because we want the facts and we want to know who said what. But whatever it is, we love the idea of quotes. We bring them up in casual conversation, we tattoo them on our bodies, we put them on the mirror in the morning. We love quotes. And this is also what I love and always funny to me, a lot of times we know the words of a quote without even always knowing who said the quote. I'm just as guilty of that, I'd say all the time, there's this one that I'm like, I know someone said this, uh, but it's a great leadership quote. He who thinks he's a leader but has no one following is simply out for a walk. Great quote, motivational, inspirational, makes me sound smart. I don't remember who says it. I don't even remember where I heard it from, but it's just my go-to leadership quote. And I think it's funny. I love when I hear people quote the Bible And sometimes they don't even understand that that's where it came from, right? The Bible and Christianity, it's so foundational still to our country and our history and our culture, but it's not necessarily as relevant to current generations. So you'll hear sometimes people quoting things that are from the Bible and they don't even know that that's where it came from. Or you'll hear people quote what they think is in the Bible and you'll be like, kind of, but you're not quite right on that. Because even today, there's a lot of sayings and rules that come from the Bible that we all kind of know, but we don't always fully understand what they mean. For example, I want to kick off this series with, I think, a great quote from the Bible. If you know how it ends, help me out. But the Bible says, when we are wronged, we should turn the other. There you go. Great Bible quote. Uh, We love to say it. Who actually said it? What book of the Bible does that come from? Do we even really know what we're talking about when we, quote, turn the other cheek? The answer to those questions might not be exactly what you think. So the quote does come from Matthew chapter 5 verse 39. So that's where we're gonna be. If you've got your Bible, you can go to Matthew 5. If you wanna follow along on your phone, again, just go to lexcity.info. There's all the story and the sermon notes. Lexcity.info, it's the home of anything you need to know for our church. It's also where you can sign your teenager up for big weekend. All right, quick shameless plug, our local retreat for middle school and high school is coming up first weekend in November. Get your teenager signed up. It is the funnest thing that we do for sure this semester. They're not gonna wanna miss it. But we're in today, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, it's the beginning of this section of the Bible we call the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew records for us this sermon that Jesus gives to some followers, and it says at the beginning of Matthew 5, this large group is following him, and so Jesus goes up a mountainside, and he sits down, and he begins to teach all of these followers. And the Sermon on the Mount, it's the longest recorded teaching that we have of Jesus, and so because of that, it's also one of the most widely quoted parts of the Bible. There are amazing uh, teachings from Jesus, things like the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, blessed are the meek, etc. In here, we get the Lord's Prayer. In here, Jesus talks about being salt and light, uh, that great Bible story of the wise man who built his house on the rock. We even have the golden rule, do to others what you would want done to you. And because this sermon is so quoted, it also has a tendency to be oftentimes misquoted. Because we can remember, yeah, Jesus said that, but we don't always remember the context of everything else that's happening around that one sentence that we just remember Jesus said. So it's not that we're necessarily wrong in our quoting of Jesus, but we sometimes aren't fully right either, and we're missing a little part of it. It's kind of like, have you ever heard someone give a really bad summary of a movie plot that you love? Okay, here's an example for you. See if you can figure out the movie. The plot, an old man with balloons abducts a young boy after his wife dies. There's a dog involved. It's the movie up, right? Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the summary of the movie. And you're like, well, technically, yes, but you're missing a lot of the other pieces of it. Okay, here's another one for you. A group spends nine hours returning jewelry. Lord of the Rings. Rings. Yeah, there we go. Someone got it right. I mean, that's pretty much, I just summarized three movies for you, okay? Here's one more just for fun. A billionaire devotes his life to cosplay and beating up the mentally ill. Yeah, obviously Batman, Dark Knight, okay? Pretty much a great summary. And you think, okay, I mean, I guess technically that's right, but you're missing a lot of the context of what's going on. You've got all the right words, but you're missing the meaning behind them. And I think at times we are guilty of doing the same thing with Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount. We have the right words. We know kind of what he said, but we miss a lot of the context and what's really going on behind them. I think that's an example of what happens in Matthew chapter five, verse 39. So by itself, Matthew 5, 39, it says this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I think there's two different ways that we've kind of misquoted this at times. Number one is this has been used to mean just be the bigger person. Don't let someone get under your skin. If someone does something to you to hurt you, just turn that other cheek to show that you're fine and it didn't really bother you. And again, that's not wrong, but it's kind of a bad movie plot description of what's going on here. Or the second one is it's been used at times to mean just pure pacifism, okay? Jesus is telling his followers, just be willing to take abuse. A good meek person is pleasing to the Lord. You should be willing to just take anything and just take it peacefully. And again, that's not 100% wrong, but it's kind of a bad movie plot description of what Jesus is talking about here. So what does Jesus mean when he tells this group of followers, turn to them the other cheek? Well, let's put this quote in its context, okay? See, there's this is actually just one of three examples that Jesus gives to try and prove something or try and demonstrate a principle to us. And all three of these examples that he's gonna give are actually all in response to an argument that he raises one verse earlier. So we actually have to go back up to Matthew chapter five, verse 38. And verse 38 is actually a part of this bigger pattern in Jesus's sermon that starts all the way back in verse 21, where Jesus is telling these followers, he says, you have heard blank, and he gives them something about the Old Testament law that they know, and he says, but I say blank. And Jesus gives a new understanding of how they should interpret this law. And that's really key to understanding that context for when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. See, this crowd that has come to follow Jesus, it's primarily a Jewish crowd, and they're all coming with different motives. Some of them are already disciples that are following him and are trying to learn more about this kingdom of God that he's talking about and how we're supposed to act and live in this world. Some of these Jewish followers are coming, and they're just religiously curious or interested in kind of what Jesus is talking about. Some of them are coming as religious skeptics who are like, well, who is this Jesus guy we've been hearing about? We're hearing that he's reframing some of this Old Testament law. We need to go see for ourselves. And then you even have some that are hostile and they're there trying to catch Jesus just saying something blasphemous so they can mob him and kill him. And so in this pattern of you have heard taught this, but I say this, Jesus says this in verse 38, starting in 38, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, man, well, when you read that whole context... Actually, turning the other cheek seems like the easiest one to understand out of those three examples that Jesus gives. So what is he talking about here? Well, we got to start with this Old Testament law that Jesus is even starting to bring up as the argument. He quotes to them a law that they all would have been familiar with, a law that many of us are still familiar with the concept, which is Leviticus 24, 19 through 20. The Old Testament law says, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So Jesus says, you've heard that. You know that's the law that you have been operating in, but I say something different. Now what's going on here? Is this God changing his idea, changing his mind of how he wants his followers to act? Because again, this is the Old Testament law God gave. So what's going on? Why is Jesus changing what God says? Well, I don't think that's actually what happen, is happening. I think what Jesus is actually doing is he's calling out the Jews for kind of being guilty of doing the same thing that we are guilty of, which is misquoting the law itself. They're saying the right thing. They're pointing to, it was written this way, but they've misunderstood the intent behind the law. See, we and the Jews of Jesus's time view this as a law of fairness and justice, Okay, what you do to me is only fair that I get to do the right same thing back to you. If you slander me, it's only fair that I get to defend myself and show that you are actually the one that's wrong and I get the right to slander you back. If you cheat on me, it's only fair that someone else is gonna cheat on you in the future. You kill somebody that I love, I'm not satisfied until you are put to death and get your family experiences what I'm experiencing. Eye for eye, the law of God is fairness and equal pain. But that's not actually what this law was. This actually was a limiting law of retaliation. In fact, Hebrew scholars say the way the law was written, it was originally read to say only an eye for an eye. Remember, the whole point of the law in the Old Testament that's given to the Israelites is to help them live holy, distinct, different from all the communities around them, that they would be this example of people who are different because they live under God's law. And so what was it that would make them different? What was gonna make them different is that at most they would do an eye for an eye. See, the Old Testament law, and it's this interesting mix of how God wants us to live while also creating allowances for our human sinfulness and how we're gonna behave with each other. And so this law of an eye for an eye, it was actually more about our protection and limiting personal retribution than it was about straight fairness. Because look, if we're honest, in our sinfulness, even eye for an eye really isn't that satisfying, Okay, In our sinfulness, we really want someone who offends and hurts us, we really want them to suffer just a little bit more than they made us go through. So that they really understand how terrible it was that they brought that on us. Because when we actually get fair, even eye for an eye, it normally doesn't even satisfy us. Right, because you're still here sitting with one eye and the fact that they have one eye doesn't really help you at all. And so you just are in this mode of like, I got it and it didn't even satisfy me. In our sinfulness, we actually want more retribution than what was done to us. And so this eye for an eye was a limiting law of how much retribution could be taken. And this law, it set Israel apart from all the other societies around it. Because the rest of the societies and the world around them were kind of living more in like, you remember when we had this like dueling concept in history? Okay, I feel like we don't talk about this much because it was so absurd, but go back to like the late 18th century when if you had your honor offended and however you want to interpret that, you could challenge the offender to a pistol duel, okay? Like imagine someone comments something terribly mean on your Facebook post and you had the right to comment grab your pistol, Lex City parking lot, after second service, you have offended my honor. And that's just the way that it would go. And someone gets shot, and then it's over. Like, talk about a punishment that way outdoes the crime that it was for. The reality is, and this is, here, let me just give you this fun fact also that I found just really crazy. In the 60 years, okay, between 1800 and 1861, the U.S. Navy lost two-thirds as many officers to dueling as it did to combat at sea, okay? And so this law for God's people was actually at most an eye for an eye. But over time, through the generations and just through our own sinfulness, this law, by the time of Jesus, was being taught and read less as only an eye for an eye And it was really being taught more like how we read it today, there will be an eye for an eye. And that's why Jesus is addressing this law in this sermon. This is why he's bringing it up. Again, look at what he says if we go back to verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you don't resist an evil person. Turn, and he gives those three examples. Turn the other cheek, give them your coat, walk the second mile. Now wait, that doesn't sound fair though. Okay, that sounds like God is just saying we are supposed to just never stand up for ourselves, we're supposed to take anything that comes, we're just never allowed to defend ourselves and that's not what he's saying. Because if we really understand these three examples that he just gave, we're gonna realize he's not talking about violence in these example, what he's really talking about is shame and humiliation. See, these were all three examples that were things that could have happened to a Jewish person on just a regular day. Okay, three examples of ways that they would be shamed and humiliated in their days. So let me just quickly kind of walk you through these three of those. We'll go in reverse order. That way we can end with our quote of turn the other cheek. But the first is this. It's the example of walking two miles. So at this time in the Roman Empire, there was this law that a Roman soldier at any time could ask any citizen in the Roman Empire to go have to walk a mile with them, carrying all of their gear and equipment. So yes, is there a physical element to this? For sure. But I think here's what's happening more. I think probably at this time, this is a law that I'm sure the Roman, uh, the soldiers are probably abusing all the time. Right, I bet you they find it fun to find people at terribly inopportune times and be like, watch this, go walk a mile and carry my stuff and they have to do it. I'm sure this becomes a punishment the soldiers just dish out for talking back to them or disrespecting them. It's in a way, it's their chance to kind of be like, hey, get down and give me a mile because you have to do it. And so I think the real frustration here for the Jewish people is this is a constant reminder that you are under someone else's empire, that you're under someone else's control, that at the end of the day, you're nothing more than just a human pack mule whenever they want you to be. But Jesus says, when this happens to you, I say, keep walking an extra mile. Go beyond what's required, go beyond what the law is making you do and just do something out of kindness. In humiliation, respond instead with kindness. And then he gives us another example. He says, okay, here's what you do if someone sues you for your shirt. And this was, I think, the most wild example out of all of them. So in this uh, context, if you were so poor that you could not be sued for anything else, someone was allowed to sue you for your shirt, or literally it was translated your tunic, okay? So at this time, men are only wearing two pieces of clothing, okay? They've got a tunic, and then they've got a coat that they wear over top. So to be sued for your tunic meant that you were leaving this courtroom completely naked, minus just your coat that you could kind of try and cover yourself up with. This is humiliation. Again, it's not that the accuser actually just wants a new shirt. It's the idea of you are going to leave here with nothing because you are nothing. And they weren't allowed to take your coat because your coat was your blanket for the night. The law was you can't take someone's blanket. And so what Jesus says, when someone attempts... To humiliate you by suing you for your shirt, give them your coat too. Give them an extra blanket for the night. In humiliation, respond with kindness. Then we have a third example, okay? In, In this culture that's a little more violent than kind of the culture we're used to, it was not uncommon for someone in authority to slap someone who was lesser than them. So what Jesus says, when you are slapped on the right cheek, meaning you would get backhanded across your face to hit you on the right cheek. Okay? Because if you were gonna slap someone who was your equal, you would slap them with your palm on the left cheek. But to be slapped on the right cheek is this backhanded, demeaning humiliation. You are lesser than me. You don't even deserve a slap in the face. And so Jesus says, turn the other cheek and Uh, A lot of commentators have kind of put their ideas out of what Jesus really is trying to say when he says, turn the other cheek. Let me just give you my thought this morning, connecting it to these two other examples. I don't think this is some type of defiance, some type of silent way to kind of protest turning the other cheek, because all the other two examples were talking about willing to go even further. So in this time, the left hand was considered dirty. Dirty. Okay, you would only use your left hand for dirty things. And so even a soldier would not strike someone with their left hand. That was just too far. But here's what Jesus says. When you are slapped on the right cheek, be willing to open yourself up to something even dirtier. Not that that soldier would probably even take it, but in a sense, you have opened yourself up. You will be willing to take something even dirtier and more humiliating than what you just took. Again, responding to humiliation with this form of kindness. So what is Jesus trying to say here? There's, these are not examples of how to respond to violence, okay? Even though there's physical parts of these examples, Jesus is using these three examples in the context of the shame and the humiliation that would be brought onto somebody. That's what all three of these are, and he's using them to reframe this idea of an eye for an eye. See, these are all three situations where the minute those happened to you, the only thing you could think of was, I can't believe they did that to me. That is not fair. I don't deserve that. They deserve to get something back at them. And you would be burning with anger of, this isn't right. I deserve to have something better. I deserve to get back at them. That's what's fair. But Jesus is calling us to something bigger than fairness. Fairness. Jesus is telling his followers in the kingdom of God in how I'm calling you to be my representation to the world, we are called to choose kindness over personal retribution. Let me give you just one more part of scripture today. Uh, Paul writes about this idea in the book of Acts. He kind of expands on it. And this is years later, okay? Paul is writing uh, to the church, sorry, in Romans. Paul is writing to the church in Rome that's developing in the heart of this Um, city that is the heart of this empire that Jesus is using as an example, and Paul writes to this church forming in Rome in chapter 12, verse 21, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And even when we first read that, our first instinct, if you're like me, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. We get to shame them by us doing the right thing. There's a little like kill them with kindness idea, right? And like, I can make them look dumb if I'm willing to do the right thing. It's going to heap a bunch of coals on their head. That's actually not... I don't think what Paul is getting at. I think Paul actually understood what Jesus is trying to help us understand. See, this image of coals, it's actually, it's less about burning and it's more about purifying. See, in the temple, coals and fire are used to prepare and to purify things for God. And so this is not this fighting a psychological battle where you're like, hey, if I, just, if I do the right thing, I know God's gonna burn that person later. That's not actually what Paul is getting at. I think what Paul and Jesus are both trying to help us understand is when we respond with kindness instead of retribution, we make an opportunity for that person to be purified. We create a moment for that person to have in their mind that question of, wait, why would you ever do that for me after what I just did to you? There's the coals. There's that moment of preparing them for God to get to do something in their life because you've opened their eyes to something they didn't even have a category for. When Jesus tells us to be willing to turn the other cheek, it's about so much more than pacifism or quiet defiance or even kindness. All those are great principles, all those things are great um, concepts, but they're a slight misquote of what Jesus is really trying to tell us when he says turn the other cheek. So what does this quote, turn the other cheek, mean in practice? Let me just break it down into two pieces, okay? Number one is this. It's choose evangelism over retribution. Choose evangelism over retributions. In other words, you are evangelizing even when you're being wronged. I think a lot of times we only think of evangelism as it's going out and sharing the gospel. It's taking care of the poor and the needy. Maybe evangelism is just sharing about the good news of Jesus from stage at church. But the reality is you are evangelizing even when you're being wronged. That's the context of what Jesus gives us this quote of turn the other cheek. All of these are examples of times when you have been wronged, when you are in a situation that you didn't deserve. And he says, look, you've had the right to get retribution. God's law permits up to an eye for an eye. But Jesus says, I'm asking you to choose evangelism over your retribution. Would you be willing to suffer that shame in a manner that would point the offender to my goodness. See, it's not God just asking us to take abuse, but actually what he's really asking us is almost even harder. What he's asking us is he says, can you have an evangelistic mindset in that moment? Would you be willing to respond strategically, consciously in a way that would point to my goodness and that would prepare them for what I can do in their life. He's not saying, he's not saying just don't take just the slap, don't just give them your shirt, don't just walk the mile, but be willing to respond with a purposeful act of kindness that prepares them for God to do something in their life. And I think a lot of us, we don't think as someone's on ramp to a relationship with God being that moment where they were attacking someone and they were so surprised at how that person responded in kindness and therefore it changed their life. But I actually feel like I got a glimpse of just a little piece of like how this could work in an experience in my life one time. Uh, When I was in college, I was a freshman in Chicago. My very first job was to be a line cook at this five-star restaurant. I don't know how I got this job because my resume was literally three years of a dairy queen in small town Missouri, but I would throw my resume out everywhere and they took me and I got this job. And so I worked for this chef who is like any other chef who believes the best way to run his kitchen is to remind everyone else that they are nothing and you are just lucky to be in his restaurant making his recipes for these rich people that are coming to eat at his place. And so... I would remember, early on, I quickly realized, okay, I'm gonna get verbally and emotionally abused pretty much every day in this job, especially if I did something wrong, but even if I did the right thing, every now and then, he just has to remind you, like, you are nothing, and I am the chef. And so I remember I I called my parents after a couple weeks working here, and I was like, I have never heard someone with the talent of being able to speak a sentence with more curse words than regular words in it. Like, you had to really focus and be like, what was the point of that uh, sentence amidst all the F-bombs and everything else? It was actually really impressive. But here's the thing. Like I said, I don't know how I got this job, Uh, Everyone else I worked with was actually going to culinary school, and so it became quickly known that I was not going to culinary school, and word kind of spread, hey, there is this Bible school kid who's working on the line with us. And I really quickly realized this is my opportunity, that how I respond to Chef is going to make a difference, how I talk, what I say under my breath after he walks away is a chance to be a little bit different. How I respond to my coworkers who are struggling in a moment is a chance to be a little bit different. It was a chance for me to say, how can I actually evangelize with the way that I just handle this entire situation? I didn't have time to share the gospel in between nonstop orders from open to close, but what I did have time to do is respond differently when things came my way, when things got hot, when people were yelling. and. The reality is I only worked there for like one year and then I got out. It was not for me. But I had a lot of coworkers say like, hey, we're gonna miss you. We're gonna miss the presence that you brought on the line because here's the reality. I had every right to yell back to defend myself, right? When Chef is yelling at me, I can literally go, I'm a Bible school kid, this is not what I wanna do. You're lucky I'm here working a part-time job for you, right? Or I had every right to talk bad about him behind his back and slander him because I know he was doing the exact same to me. I had every right to get my fairness and throw my own coworker under the bus when they're actually the one who messed up and I'm the one who's getting yelled at, but I also saw this is actually an opportunity though of how I could respond differently and show what my faith means to me and show what God has called me to do. This is my chance to evangelize. And so I still look back on those years. Uh, It was the worst job ever. I have no fond memories of that job, but I know that I left that place with confidence that everyone there said there was that Bible kid who worked on the line with us and he responded differently differently than everybody else did to the way that he was treated, to the way that people talked about him, to the way that he interacted with us. See, when Jesus is telling us to turn the other cheek, he says, I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This isn't about suffering. This is about consciously being different. Are you willing to choose evangelism over your own personal retribution. And now I know some of you are sitting here really uncomfortable and really squirming because you hate that idea and that solution to conflict resolution. So here's the other thing that has to be true in order for us to understand this principle that Jesus is saying, and that's number two, which is trust God's justice. Trust his justice, and this is the hardest thing to do, but it's the most freeing thing if you're able to do it. Again, Paul wrote, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you trust that God is good? Do you trust that God is just and that he sees everything and that he knows everything and that he's fighting the battle for you? Do you trust that song we just sang that he is your great defender? Because he promises he's fighting for us. But here's the thing, it's not going to be on the timeline that we think the battle should be fought most times. Oftentimes it's not gonna be in the way that we think it should be fought. It might not even have the outcome that we feel like the battle should have had. But can you trust that God is good, that God knows all, that God sees all, that God is just? Because number one is impossible if you can't believe number two. It takes trust in God's justice to be able to choose to respond differently. And here's the funny thing. If you learn to trust God's justice, when that time comes and you finally get the retribution, it won't even matter to you. Five years down the road when that person comes and they apologize for what they've done, you get to kind of laugh to yourself and think, I gave that to God years ago. I don't even necessarily need the apology. I've already worked through it. God had my back and I knew it. Again, this isn't about violence. This is about Shame, about offense, about humiliation. So, Matthew 5, verse 38 if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Easy in theory, a lot harder in practice. A great quote that we love, not something we love to meditate on. Because it's not about black and white, it's not about fairness, it's not even about being the bigger person, it's a call to face offense with a higher calling that we would choose evangelism over our own personal retribution, and we can do that because we trust that God's justice. And even more, we can do that because it's what Jesus did for us. In the abuse, in the shame, in the humiliation of his crucifixion, the abuse that he took at the hands of the very ones that he created, what did he do? He takes it silently. He he weathers it all, and what were his final words? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus lived this principle of turn the other cheek. It wasn't about weakness. It wasn't about being a better person. It was about choosing to accept the offense with the goal of providing salvation for the offender. As Christians, we're called to model Christ. So when we have opportunities, to get our eye for an eye, we can choose instead to respond with evangelistic kindness, to turn the other cheek. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Lord, you give us a really hard call to turn the other cheek. It goes against everything our sinful nature feels is best. So this week, help us to remember that when we're wronged, And offended and shamed to view it with a higher calling as an opportunity to respond in evangelistic ways and we can do that because we trust that you are the ultimate judge and even more you did the same for us so forgive us for our desire to take retribution into our own hands and as you taught us to pray forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespass against us we love you we praise you and we just pray all these things in your name amen thank you for listening to the lex city church podcast if you would like to support ministries of lex city visit lexcity.church give please subscribe and follow us on social media at lex city church for more encouraging teachings and content